Take your Bible this morning as you are being seated and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we're continuing our journey through this epistle, Paul's letter to the church in the city of Rome. And just, you know, as a little disclaimer, um, this morning we're going to be finishing uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, by the I mean, we're going to be doing it both this again next week. We're going to read the entire text today, um, but we're going to be kind of talking about it over the next couple of weeks, and it's going to lead us directly into chapter 9. Rather than kind of breaking up the end of Romans 8 into two separate things, we're instead going to try to encounter it as a whole unit, um, but talk about it over the course of two weeks, and then that will lead us into chapter 9. Part of the reason why we're doing this is because, much like chapter 7, chapter, uh, the end of chapter 8 and really chapter 9 uh, are considered by some to be controversial areas of the book of Romans. And so one of the things we've wanted to do as we're walking through this is to, when we encounter some of these areas, is to stop and to really kind of take stock of what is there and ask the question, why is this controversial? Like, what, what's actually going on here? What we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 7 was that the controversy is not necessarily over what Paul has said. It really stems more from some confusion over what Paul means. And so as we saw a few weeks ago, there are numerous uh, theories, if you will, or interpretations of what Paul was trying to communicate in chapter 7. Who he was speaking of, was he talking about himself, was he talking about someone else? But when we get to chapter 9... There's not really confusion over what Paul means. The controversy really is over, do we want to believe this or not? And that's a very different thing in a lot of ways. And uh, my prayer is that as we encounter this, that what we will do is really try to encounter the Word of God that is on the page, ask the question, what is here in Scripture, and then seek to arrive at an interpretation for ourselves that we can then apply to our lives. That's always our task as we're studying the Word of God. We want to know what is here. We want to observe it thoroughly. We want to try to interpret it with accuracy. And then we want to put it into practice in the everyday. So Romans chapter 8, we're beginning in verse 18 today. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope... For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So throughout this section of Romans, really beginning in chapter 5, Paul in a very broad way has been laying out for us and unpacking the process of sanctification. And, and this has been a shift somewhat from the very first part of the letter because he really began by talking about justification. And again, we, we use those words a lot. They're big kind of fancy theological words, and sometimes they can go in one ear and right out the other, and yet they are key for us, guys. These are central to the gospel itself. They're central to the work that Christ was accomplishing on the cross and what He is doing in us even right now. Um, Jesus' sacrifice gives us the opportunity to be made right before God instead of our reality that on our own before God we are completely wrong and deserving of nothing other than death. This is justification. That before God, through Christ, we have been made right somehow, even though we are not right, even though we are wrong. We have been made just, hence the word justification, before God. Even though we are not just, even though we are undeserving of that kind of grace, that kind of forgiveness, right? That kind of cleansing. Through Christ and His sacrifice, we can stand before God in spite of our sin, and be declared right and just. What an incredible gift. So God has done this amazing thing by extending grace to us through Christ, but that grace does not only cover us in, in sort of like a legal way before God. It doesn't just cover the way that we stand before Him and what He sees when He looks at us. It doesn't only set things right between us and God so that one day when we come before the judgment seat, we can be declared innocent. It also changes us in the here and now. It's not just one day down the road, it's also in the here and now. And that process by which we are being changed in the here and now is sanctification. 
right? Justification is us being made right before God. The process of sanctification is the process through which we are being changed now. And I emphasize the word process. It's not a one-time thing. It is this gradual growth and maturity experience that we have. And, And listen, this is important. The process of of being changed by God is the process, according to Paul, of being conformed to the image of Christ. So it's not just becoming a better person. It's not just becoming a more moral person. It's not just becoming a more kind person, even though I think those things will happen as you experience the process of sanctification. Specifically, it is becoming more like Jesus. That is the work that God is doing within us through His Holy Spirit right now, conforming us, Paul says, to the image of Christ. And Paul began broadly unpacking that whole thing, that whole process, sanctification, starting in chapter 5. And and here's how he started things. If you flip over real quick to chapter 5, look at verse 3. Here's how he began this whole conversation. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Like, that's one of those things that, like, as I'm reading through Paul, it's like I have to stop and just take that in for a moment. Because sometimes we can read through this real quick and just kind of go, oh, he's Paul, like he's some kind of superhero, like he's not human. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, it's interesting that Paul begins this section, this conversation about sanctification, by, by talking about suffering. He begins all of this by talking about suffering and by saying God is doing something through our suffering. God is doing something through our suffering. Your suffering is not pointless. Your suffering is not invalid. Instead, it is like bringing something about within you. It is birthing something within you. So so Paul has set the stage for us already, just a few chapters ago, that God is doing something here. He's doing something in us through suffering. He doesn't talk this way about the good stuff of life, at least not at this point. Instead, he's looking at persecution. He's looking at the trials and the tribulations that the body of Christ is facing. And he says, let us rejoice in this. Now, now we come away with that, with this notion that God is actually using trials and problems and challenges and sufferings to do incredible things with us to help grow us up into Christ. In our text just this past week, here's what he said. This was in chapter 8, verse 16. He said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Well, that's incredible. Not just children of God, but heirs to the kingdom of God with Christ, fellow heirs. But, but then he says, There's this caveat at the end of it. We're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Provided that we suffer with Him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a church that taught me 
that Jesus suffered on my behalf so that I would not have to suffer. I don't know if you were taught that as a kid, but, but that's how the gospel was presented to me, right? That I was due the penalty of death because of my sin, and so Jesus went to the cross and suffered on my behalf so that I would not have to suffer. Now, wait a second, that's true, isn't it, right? Jesus suffered death so that I wouldn't have to suffer eternal death, so that I wouldn't have to be separated from the Father. Like what Jesus has done on the cross atones for my sin. It is substitutionary, right? He has taken my place. But where did I get this notion that that means so I will never experience any bad thing in my life? Or I will never suffer in any way in my life. Or the brokenness of this world will not affect me in any way. The reality is is that both things are true. And if we're not careful, we can be confused by this. When hard times come, and when suffering comes, and when challenges come, and when persecutions come, understanding this is going to be critical for you and me moving forward. If your understanding of God is that He primarily exists to make you happy, or to give you what you want, then you have bought into the notion of God that much more closely resembles Aladdin's genie than the God of the Bible. If your understanding of God is that He died for you so that you won't suffer in some way in life, then you are simply wrong. In fact, Christ said in the Gospels, if we want to come after Him, then we have to do what? We have to pick up our own cross and follow. Sounds very similar to what Paul's getting at here, that we can be fellow heirs with him provided that we suffer with him. Now, we could take this to an extreme where it becomes untrue, that in order for me to be an heir with Christ, then I have to suffer in the same way that he suffered. Well, that's not true. Jesus has suffered the ultimate penalty, the ultimate price on our behalf. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. His blood covers us. This is what we celebrate every week when we come to the table. He's paid a price that we could not pay. He has bought our sin and our shame. But it doesn't mean that we will not experience hardships in our lives. Paul's perspective is that Christ died so that you might be justified and sanctified before the Father, so that you could be called a child of God and an heir with Christ. In the meantime, though, he set the stage that we still struggle, right? I mean, how much of this letter has he been talking about our sin and the challenge of sin and the challenge of temptation? And even he said about himself in chapter 7, sometimes I do things I don't want to do, right? Or sometimes I don't even understand my own actions, Like, we've all had that experience. And and here's what I think, guys, as, as I read through this. I think there are two levels of struggle or suffering that he's talking about here. There is kind of a physical, earthly level, and then there is a spiritual level. So, the physical, earthly level is what we think of more often as Christian persecution, right? The challenges that come along with seeking to follow God in our world. Our world is broken. Our world is sinful. There are all kinds of temptations. There are all kinds of things that would seek to pull us off the path of following Christ in this world. Those are like physical 
challenges, physical sufferings, but then there's also spiritual sufferings that we've talked a little bit about over the last few weeks. Because Paul said, look, we have to set our mind on the Spirit. But when we set our mind on the Spirit, we still live in this body of flesh. We still live in this body of flesh that is tempted, that struggles with sin. And so we've chosen the harder path in following Christ because now we have a mind seeking to set itself on things of the Spirit and we have a body that is going to die. Right? And that is the body of sin, a body of flesh, as Paul calls it. And he says two things are at war with each other. It's easier for you to just give yourself over to the flesh and to sin. Because now your mind and your body are not in conflict with each other. You do what you want, you see what you want, you take what you want. There's no issue here. I'm just going to go after what I think is best. It's when I actually start to follow Christ that the desires of the flesh, but the mindset on the Spirit start to come into conflict with each other. And guess what? That produces a level of suffering within us. Because Jesus has called us to pick up our cross. Jesus has called us to die to self. Jesus has called us to love our neighbor in the way that we love ourselves. How do you do that without suffering? On some level, right? You would have to be a complete emotionless automaton who who is just devoid of any self-interest in order to like give yourself over to that fully and love it without some feeling of loss or regret, right? That's what comes as we live in the brokenness of this world. Does that make sense? Does everybody understand kind of what I'm getting at here? So Paul is speaking on both levels. He's speaking on the spiritual level, that there is spiritual suffering going on for us as we seek to follow Christ, and on the physical level also. So as our text picks up today, here's his point. The present struggle, our present suffering, is totally worth it, right? Whatever you're experiencing right now, it is totally worth it when we compare it to what is to come, right? No matter how hard it is, no matter what the challenge is, no matter how deep the suffering is, guys, look at what's ahead of us here. Look at what suffering is going to produce. It's ultimately going to bring us to this incredible place, He says, we know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. So even though we have suffering, even though we experience hard things, we also get to rest in this notion that our condemnation is gone. So so any like guilt or shame that we might feel, like Jesus can take that away. It doesn't mean we don't struggle anymore. But guilt and shame can be lifted from us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. There is now no condemnation. And so this is what Paul calls the hope of glory. That in this present state, yes, there may be suffering, but there is also hope. There is also hope. That word in the Greek for glory is the word doxa. And it it literally means like honor. So if we say we're we're glorifying God while we're honoring God. So Paul is saying that what is to come for those who are in Christ is not just salvation. And that sounds silly to say not just salvation. It's not just salvation. It's not just being saved from your sin. It's being saved from death. But what is also to come for us is glory. 
is honor. And that's, that's like astounding stuff, that we will be honored along with Christ as children of God and heirs to the kingdom of God. I mean, it's just, right? The, the sheer fact that God would send His only Son to die for us so that we could just be saved from death and hell is, like, it's good news in and of itself. Like, it's plenty good. But yet there is this next level, which is, it doesn't stop there. But wait, there's more, right? You will become children of God. Now, what's amazing about this to me is if this is true, who cares what we have to endure right now? Like, who cares what the present moment is right now? Man, COVID and this weird season has been hard for a lot of folks. Even people who haven't had the illness or any illness or don't even know people who've had the illness have been affected by this in some way or another, right? Whether it's your job or it's your friends or it's your family. I mean, just in our neighborhood in South Highlands, man, businesses are closing left and right. I don't know if you guys are noticing this around town, but and this is having an effect on our economy, our nation, the world in general. But if it's not this, it's something else. If it's not this, sometimes it's things invisible. Fear, anxiety, I can't even put my finger on it. I don't even know what it is, but it's there, and I feel it, and I feel the weight of it. I feel the weight of the brokenness of the world. But if this is true, if the gospel is true, who cares what we have to endure right now? And and I just want to remind us that this is good news, like in the sense that it blows away kind of everything else, but, but it's... It's so, so much greater than anything the Jews could have ever imagined from the Messiah. Like we've talked about this a little bit before, but when the Jews were envisioning the coming Messiah, they were envisioning a new David who was going to arrive, a new King David. King David had been one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. Like he had led Israel to a position of like financial prominence among the nations, military prominence among the nations. He made the fortunes of Israel great. And so when people thought a a new king is coming, they thought it's going to be like that. Like he's going to restore this kind of physical place, this physical nation, this earthly nation. He's going to come and do that. But then Jesus arrives, and what actually happens is that Jesus shows up, and through his death, not through his victory in battle against the Romans, but through his death, he is bringing about a form of glory that far exceeds anything that they had ever imagined. They were imagining the glory of the physical nation of Israel coming back to prominence, Jesus has come and said, oh, I've got a better kingdom for you. I've got a better nation for you. In fact, I'm going to invite you into it. And you're not just going to be an immigrant there. You're not just going to be a sojourner there. I'm going to bring you in as children of the king himself, heirs to the kingdom itself. Isn't that incredible? So even if the present moment is challenging, It's not just us. It's not just you. Everybody experiences this on some level. Paul says the whole creation itself is groaning. The whole creation itself is groaning. The whole creation recognizes that this is not what it was made for. 
And this calls our attention all the way back to the garden where all of this started, where the man and the woman disobeyed God, and as a result, the whole of creation was thrown into what, calls, what Paul calls futility, that the creation was subjected to futility. Sometimes that word gets interpreted as the word vanity, and not vanity in the sense of being like egocentric, but vanity in the sense of pointlessness, right? In the Old Testament, when you read all is vanity, it's like just all is pointless. Here are the images that the creation has become increasingly pregnant with the futility of sin and darkness and brokenness. And the death and resurrection of Christ is truly like setting things into labor. What we said two weeks ago is that it's easier for us to walk in the flesh with our minds set on the flesh because there's no conflict there. It's when our mind is set on the Spirit that suddenly we are thrown into conflict. Jesus said, easy is the path that leads to death. When the mind is set on the Spirit, there is reason for hope, which is one of Paul's sub-points here. Guys, hope. We, gotta, we have to have hope in the midst of this suffering, right? If what's being produced in us is hopelessness, then we're not holding tight to the gospel. We're not holding tight to the promise of Christ and what He has done for us. If it's, if it's just something we can see in the here and now, then it's not hope. hope or, hope's things we can't see. Right? So, our hope is more than that we won't be separated from God because of our sin. Our hope is that we will be called children of God and heirs with Christ. And, and this is where God is just flagrant in His generosity towards us. And even more than that, thankfully, He has not left us alone in our suffering. This is why He has given us the Spirit. The Spirit even prays for us so often. We don't know what to pray or we don't pray, but the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He prays what we don't know to pray. He gives words to what we don't have words for. The Spirit is interceding before God right now. He is our helper. When we are weak, He is strong. So, so Paul's train of thought began with this. Through Christ, we are promised a future as children of God and heirs to the kingdom. But in the present moment, we're experiencing suffering because the spirit and the flesh are in conflict. But we have faith and a hope of future glory that we do not see fully in the present moment. And some more good news for us is that even in the present moment, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us and who helps us in our weakness. So that's kind of the thought process here that gets us to verse 28. And this is where things can get challenging for some people. What we're going to be talking about next week and over the next couple of weeks is what's known as the doctrine of predestination and election which is what Paul really digs into in chapter 9. And it's, it's one of the things I told our staff this morning as we were praying. It's one of those things where depending on if you grew up in the church or not, but if you grew up in the church, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you either talked about this all the time or never. There's not a lot of in-between, I've found. And so we're going to just scratch the surface today, but really start to dig into it next week because I want us to encounter it and come away with an understanding of what Paul is actually saying to us here. 
Let's look at verse 28 together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So God works all things together for the good for those whom He has called. Now remember... Paul has made claims of gospel exclusivity throughout this entire letter. When it says God works all things together for the good, it doesn't say God works all things together for the good, hard stop, period. It doesn't say God works all things together for the good for all people, period. What does it say? God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, but what is the good? Right? Is that, is that based on your understanding of what is good? Is that based on your concept or your definition of goodness? What is the good when Paul works all things together for the good? Or when God works all things together for the good, rather? Because this is a verse that gets thrown around all the time, right? right? You, you got the job you wanted. Well, God works all things together for the good, you know? Or your kids got into the school you wanted. Well, God works all things together for the good. Or, or your loved one... This healed from the illness that he or she had. Well, God works all things together for the good. And, and listen, I, I, I think we're inclined to say that with regards to many things. And I don't want to discount the fact that God is clearly at work in the everyday of our lives. Because he certainly is. But here, with this particular verse, let's consider the context. Because the good is actually defined for us by verses 29 and 30. Look at those again. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. For those whom He foreknew. Who is that? Who does God foreknow, right? Now, there are many people who say, well, who does God not foreknow, right? God knows everybody. God knew you before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, the Scriptures say. But again, what is the context here? For those whom He foreknew are the people described by verse 28 as those whom He has called according to His purposes. That's the context here. So for those who are called according to His purposes, what has God done? Well, God has predestined, or you could say God has ordained, that they would be sanctified. If, if you've been called according to the purposes of God, God has ordained that you will be sanctified because of what Christ has done on the cross. And don't let that word predestined throw you off, because Paul's not really saying anything new here. Right? This is not some big turn in the letter. Right? He, in many ways, he's reiterating some things that he has already said. We already know that God is going to justify and sanctify those who are in Christ. We've already talked about that today as we just went back kind of over the course of the letter up till now. 
So things being worked together for the good here is that those whom God has called will be sanctified. They will be heirs with Christ. They will also be sent with God's purposes. They will be justified, it says. They will ultimately be glorified or honored. So what, that's the good, right? Can you think of be, like better good? Right? It's not just these little individual moments in life. The good that Jesus, through his sacrifice, is working together is this eternal good. It's this gospel-centered good. It's this good where we don't have to be us anymore. Like, riddled with sin and condemned in our sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. This incredible, broad, all-encompassing good that is ultimately making us children of God. So while he is clearly at work in the everyday stuff of life, while there is power in things like prayer, there's already something that has been sealed through the death and resurrection of Christ for those who are called according to his purposes, that we will be heirs to that promise. At the end of verse 29, it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. What we said is that uh, on a very base level, that means honored. But the biblical concept of glorification is that our flesh will be renewed, that our bodies will be made new, that God is not just renewing our spirit in some way, that God is ultimately going to resurrect our bodies from the ground. This is the picture painted in Scripture, that our bodies will rise up out of the grave and we will be given glorified bodies, okay? All right, so let me stop here for today. Here's what I'm going to leave you with. The next verse, and hopefully based on all of that, you can see why Paul would now say this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If He is powerful to do everything we just said, then what in the world would we ever have to worry about? Right? So can you understand now, if all of this is true, even though suffering is real and hard and present, there is tremendous hope that's like hanging like this big umbrella over our suffering. And it's what we're looking up to as what is to come. And we go, this is all worth it because I can see what is ahead of me. If God is for us, who can be against us? What do I have to worry about? What could I ever be afraid of? But don't miss this, because if you miss this, you're going to be lost. Paul is describing what God has done through Christ not what you have done and not what I have done, right? He's describing what Jesus has done on our behalf. Not something we've earned, not something that we've lived up to, not something that we've bought. Also, not just a great choice that we've made. When we looked at the buffet of options, we said, I want to try that. It wasn't just wisdom on our part. It's all about Jesus and His work I'm going to leave you with that truth. Let me pray for us and we will pick up next week. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the truth of your scripture. Pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you will interpret your word into our hearts. Father, that we will truly find hope 
in the things that we have spoken of today, that these would not in any way just be intellectual things that we affirm or assent to, but instead, Father, that we would look to you and truly see future. And future not just as people who are saved, but future as your children with new bodies at your table, in your family, in your kingdom. God, give us a vision of this, and may we look to it when things are hard. May we even rejoice when things are hard, because we're so assured of the fact that there is no condemnation for us, and that if you were for us, nothing could be against us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.